Hello, Minnesota. This is Leona Hernandez. And I'm Tony. Thank you for joining us today for our fifth episode of Hello, Minnesota. Today, we're going to discuss an article published in The Atlantic by Peter Weiner on October 18th of this year. It's called Evangelicals Made a Bad Bargain with Trump. We're also going to discuss the principles of Catholic social teaching that we use when determining how to vote, as well as other actions. Even if you're not Catholic, Christian, or religious, please stay with us. As you heard me say in previous episodes, the tenets of Catholic social teaching are ways of relating with others that will resonate with any person striving for an ethical society. So I do think this will be interesting, even to our listeners who are not Catholic. Once again, a huge thank you to those who have subscribed to Hello Minnesota, shared and liked our links, and sent us public or private thoughts on the episodes. We appreciate you, and we'd be grateful if you would subscribe to Hello Minnesota on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever podcast source you use. If, as well, you could request that Hello Minnesota is a show on your favorite podcast uh, distributor, we'd certainly appreciate that, too. Uh, before we get into our topic, though, we got to discuss a little bit about our trip here. This is actually our last evening in Minnesota, so we're both yes. feeling a little bit anxious. Mm-hmm. But we wanted to just reach out and make a show before we leave. And yep. do we have everything? What are the most important things that we we're, we're, we need to bring with us? We have a huge bin of school supplies. We have the kids' bikes. And we have uh, winter boots to wear tomorrow. And then sandals packed as we as we reach warmer climates. Yeah, so our, our van, you know, we drove down to Florida where Leona worked down there as well. Now we're driving to El Centro, California. It's going to be quite a jaunt. We're going to be heading uh, south in the South Dakota border, mm-hmm. stopping in Sioux Falls. And then I believe we're going to be going through Nebraska, mm-hmm. Omaha, and potentially getting out to Denver mm-hmm. and then making our way to Las Vegas, Yep, visiting a friend there. And we'll probably spend Halloween there, which yeah. is, for many of you, you know, it's going to be up in the air in terms of what Halloween's going to be like. But I know our kids definitely want to go trick-or-treating, so we're going to find a safe way to do that. Somehow or another, they're definitely going to be wearing their costumes. This mm-hmm. year, we'll have two Iron Men and one little Wonder Woman, mm, which, will, which will be a big change. The last two Halloweens, we had two Black Panthers two years in a row. So, And the kids, you know, they seem pretty excited, I think, to spend some time in California. We're going to be there for 13 weeks. Uh, it's going to be a good experience for them. Hopefully, they don't skip a beat. I think they're a little bit nervous, just like we are, too. But They know. definitely verbalize... Well, Max does, our oldest, being sad to be away from friends and cousins, which makes me sad and also really melts my heart, to be honest. So, yeah, it'll be an adventure. Um, so with with our show today, the main premise of Peter Weiner's article in The Atlantic is that evangelicals have, by and large, supported Trump due to a desire for, quote, influence and power. End quote, and that this hypocritical support of an immoral person, Trump, has turned people, particularly young people, away from the church. Weiner quotes a statement by the Southern Baptist Convention in 1998. So this was during the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal. And at that Southern Baptist Convention, they wrote, quote, be it finally resolved that we urge all Americans to embrace and act on the conviction that character does count in public office and to elect those officials and candidates who, although imperfect, demonstrate consistent honesty, moral purity, and the highest character, end quote. What do you think about this, Tone? 
Well, I guess my first thought with the actual premise of the article is it may or may not be accurate. I mean, it's true that young people uh, have been turning away from organized religion. This includes the Catholic Church. This includes other Christian denominations, uh, Judaism, and I believe even Islam. But younger people have been turning away from organized religion uh, for quite some time. And I'm not quite sure if you can exactly make that correlation that they're leaving or that some Christians are so turned off by their parents or friends who are Christian support for Donald Trump. And I'm not sure we as Christians are ever meant to really judge somebody's moral purity at the ballot box. Yes, it should be a driving factor. Character and leadership and ethics definitely matters in the highest office in the land. But also history shows us that the light of day or the truth is sometimes covered and it's not exactly apparent as to exactly what is good or evil in terms of politics. I think I agree with what you said above, um, that not voting for Trump because of who he is personally is dangerous because it places a judgment of the personal identity of a candidate above a judgment of policies and the actual effects of policies. So the way I look at it is this means that those most affected by policies, for good or for bad, are not the primary consideration when voting if the primary consideration is judging the personal character of the candidates. Um, So it seems like what Wayner in the Atlantic article is saying is that our primary consideration should be, do I think this particular candidate is a good person? And then will I look inconsistent if I vote for such and such a person? So I think he's advocating for thinking in that way rather than thinking, how will my vote actually affect other people who I am obligated to consider in all of my actions, including voting? So that brings up an interesting question is, is you personally, who are those people or as voters that we and, and as Christians or Catholics that we should be morally obligated to consider? Like, who are those people? Yeah, it's a great question. I think Catholics in particular, but I, I know so many people who are not Christian who still have this real view. I think we need to think of others in general in all of our actions, including voting We'll get into the Catholic definition of the common good, but I think that that answers it in a little bit more detail as well. Um, But real quickly on this, these are interesting considerations to have when voting, to think of of the person rather than which policies are most likely to actually be put in place by this person versus the other candidate, and then which policies are in line with a moral and civil society that I want to help build. So it's interesting to not think primarily of those questions, but instead to primarily judge someone's personal character and then think of how we will be perceived by others based on who we vote for. Um, I, I don't know if this sounds harsh, but I'm honestly not sure it's very Christian to make a decision based on the opinion others may have of me rather than based on the actual effects of my decisions on others. And that could explain, too, why we see an inconsistency, perhaps, in what the polls are showing nationally and on local levels versus what the actual election results are going to come in, because I think a lot of people uh, like to make others lead to them to believe they're voting a certain way or they want to avoid the discussion or debate altogether, so they just don't even talk about it with their friends or family. 
uh, but they may vote a completely different way than you expect when they're actually in the ballot box. That's why public debate, freedom of speech, talking with one another, understanding each other is so important. So, Leona, what do you think should guide how we look at policies when we vote? Yeah, so as I alluded to above, being Catholic, I think we have to look at the principles of Catholic social teaching and keep each of these tenets in mind when we consider policies and voting. Um, As I said above, again, if you're not Catholic, please stick with us. Uh, But before we list the principles of Catholic social teaching to answer your great question about who we should consider, why don't we give a definition of the common good? Um, The following is a summary definition based entirely on the Catechism of the, or not even based, it's directly from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 1906, 07, 08, and 09. Uh, And this, this is all quoted quoted from the catechism. So to be clear then, the catechism, is that official church teaching then, or is this Catholic doctrine? It's a compilation of church teaching. Um, It was initially compiled under Pope John Paul II. Um, It has been edited slightly since then. Not everything in the catechism is infallible. There are different levels of infallibility. So um, like something that a pope says when they're not in a in a particular uh, teaching capacity has less bearing upon us as Catholics than something that the pope says when they're specifically trying to release a teaching document. But even those teaching documents, like an encyclical, are not infallible. There are parts of the catechism where they clearly say this is a teaching the church has always confirmed and will always confirm. So there are some. Um, Ex cathedra is the term. There are some matters of doctrine that will never change and matters that anyone who chooses to be Catholic has to submit to um, if they are choosing to be Catholic. But then there are so many other teaching teaching documents and teaching words that are not necessarily all infallible. Okay. That sounds like maybe a good topic for another show, too, to go into more detail. Yeah, definitely. So the common good is, quote, the sum total of social conditions which allow people either as groups or as individuals to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. Three essential elements of the common good. Number one, must respect the fundamental and inalienable rights of each human person. Two, requires that the good of the whole be accounted for. It should make accessible to each what is needed to lead a truly human life. Food, clothing, health, work, education, and culture, suitable information, the right to establish a family, and so on. And number three requires, quote, peace and the legitimate personal and collective defense. Leona, do you want to list these principles of Catholic social teaching? Yeah, so after we have a good understanding of the common good, um, again, from the Catechism of the Catholic Church and the United States Council of Catholic Bishops um, in The main tenets of Catholic social teaching are, one, dignity of the person and right to life, number two, rights and responsibilities, number three, call to family, community, and participation, number four, option for the poor and care for the vulnerable, number five, solidarity, number six, dignity of work and rights of the worker, number seven, subsidiarity, number eight, care for the environment. I think many of these are self-explanatory, but we'll explain them each very quickly. And all of the sources below are from the catechism. So we'll just say the the paragraph. So number one, dignity of the person and right to life. Paragraph 2414, the seventh commandment forbids acts or enterprises that for any reason, selfish or ideological, commercial or totalitarian, 
lead to the enslavement of human beings, to their being bought, sold, and exchanged like merchandise in disregard for their personal dignity. It is a sin against the dignity of persons and their fundamental rights to reduce them by violence to their productive value or to a source of profit. And then from paragraph 2273, the inalienable right to life of every innocent human individual is a constitutive element of a civil society and its legislation. As a consequence of the respect and protection which must be ensured for the unborn child from the moment of conception, the law must provide appropriate penal sanctions for every deliberate violation of the child's rights. And then lastly, for this principle, from paragraph 1935, the equality of men rests essentially on their dignity as persons and the rights that flow from it. Every form of social or cultural discrimination in fundamental personal rights on the grounds of sex, race, color, social conditions, language, or religion must be curbed and eradicated as incompatible with God's design. Rights and Responsibilities Freedom is exercised in relationships between human beings. Every human person created in the image of God has the natural right to be recognized as a free and responsible being. All owe to each other this duty of respect, the right to the exercise of freedom, especially in moral and religious matters, is an inalienable requirement of the dignity of the human person. This right must be recognized and protected by civil authority within the limits of the common good and public order. Number three, call to family, community, and participation from paragraph 1946. The differences among persons belong to God's plan, who wills that we should need one another. These differences should encourage charity. And from paragraph 2444, love for the poor is even one of the motives for the duty of working, so as to be able to give to those in need. It extends not only to material poverty, but also to the many forms of cultural and religious poverty. Number four, option for the poor, care for the vulnerable. In its various forms, material deprivation, unjust oppression, physical and psychological illness and death, human misery is the obvious sign of the inherited condition of frailty and need for salvation in which man finds himself as a consequence of original sin. This misery elicited the compassion of Christ the Savior, who willingly took it upon himself and identified himself with the least of his brethren. Hence, those who are oppressed by poverty are the object of a preferential love on that part of the church which, since her origin and in spite of the failings of many of her members, has not ceased to work for their relief, defense, and liberation through numerous works of charity which remain indispensable always and everywhere. The equal dignity of human persons requires the effort to reduce excessive social and economic inequalities. It gives urgency to the elimination of sinful inequalities. Number five, solidarity. From paragraph 1939, the principle of solidarity, also articulated in terms of friendship or social charity, is a direct demand of human and Christian brotherhood. From paragraph 1942, the virtue of solidarity goes beyond material goods. In spreading the spiritual goods of the faith, the church has promoted and often opened new paths for the development of temporal goods as well. <laughs> Number six, dignity of work, rights of the worker. Paragraph 2428. In work, the person exercises and fulfills, in part, the potential inscribed in his nature. The primordial value of labor stems from man himself, its author and beneficiary. Work is for man, not man for work. Everyone should be able to draw from work the means of providing for his life and that of his family and 
of serving the human community. Number seven, subsidiarity. Paragraph 1884, God has not willed to reserve to himself all exercise of power. He entrusts to every creature the functions it is capable of performing according to the capacities of its own nature. This mode of governance ought to be followed in social life. The way God acts in governing the world, which bears witness to such great regard for human freedom, should inspire the wisdom of those who govern human communities. They should behave as ministers of divine providence. And the following paragraph, 1885, the principle of subsidiarity is opposed to all forms of collectivism. It sets limits for state intervention. It aims at harmonizing the relationships between individuals and societies. Number eight, care for the environment. Paragraph 2415. The seventh commandment enjoins respect for the integrity of creation. Animals, like plants and inanimate beings, are by nature destined for the common good of past, present, and future humanity. Use of the mineral, vegetable, and animal resources of the universe cannot be divorced from respect for moral imperatives. Man's dominion over inanimate and other living beings granted by the Creator is not absolute. It is limited by concern for the quality of life of his neighbor, including generations to come. It requires a religious respect for the integrity of creation. Paragraph 2403, the right to private property, acquired or received in a just way, does not do away with the original gift of the earth to the whole of mankind. The universal destination of goods remains primordial, even if the promotion of the common good requires respect for the right to private property and its exercise. So these are teaching principles for each of us to use as we make our decisions regarding voting. These principles don't tell us exactly how to vote in each circumstance, but they do provide some very clear, cut and dry answers to some questions, and then some very apt both and considerations for other questions. Yeah, I agree. I think these principles make clear that we need a society that respects the inalienable rights of each human, the Catechism explicitly states that this includes the right to life and the right to freedom, and it also clearly names the inherent evils of racism, sexism, etc. So life and freedom of each person must be protected, and racism and other evil-isms must be rooted out. So I think that's clear from these principles, and that's hopefully what we would expect. But how do we vote so as to root out systemic inequalities in education, the justice system, and our economy? What should legislation look like when it comes to welfare, the housing market, and care for the environment according to these principles? When it comes to our justice system, it's clear to me that there are definitely systemic inequalities that need to be rooted out. Some examples would be how uh, laws are enforced on the street level, drug laws, uh, how justice is administered within the courts, uh, the defense system, the public defense system versus the money required to hire uh, private lawyers. Mm -hmm. We need to have solidarity with those unjustly imprisoned or worse by our justice system and also solidarity with those living in neighborhoods with high rates of crime. Mm -hmm. We also need to remember the dignity of the human person when thinking of what legislation regarding our justice system should look like while simultaneously working to root out systemic inequalities, which are sometimes uh, race-based and sometimes against those who are poor uh, within our policing and justice systems. Both passing police reform bills and ensuring effective policing when needed seem like great principles to look for when voting. The definition of the common good from above. 
which states the sum total of the social conditions which allow people, either as groups or as individuals, to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily, and gives the principle of peace and the legitimate personal and collective defense. It also means we're voting in line with paragraph 1947, which gives urgency to the elimination of sinful inequalities. I think it's obvious that some people being imprisoned, or worse, for longer amounts of time than others who committed the same crime is a sinful inequality that should be rooted out immediately. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree. Um, Another area where we need to strive for the best balance or the most comprehensive approach possible is in regards to the economy and welfare. The Catechism explicitly states both that work is a good part of being human and that each person should have food, clothing, housing, education, information, culture, etc. These are both needs which must be accounted for. Paragraph 2428 in the Catechism says, quote, Work is for man, not man for work. Everyone should be able to draw from work the, me- the means of providing for his life and that of his family and of serving the human community. Uh, Tony read that above, but I think it's worth repeating. And then another paragraph 2444 says, quote, Love for the poor is even one of the motives for the duty of working so as to be able to give to those in need. 2401 says, The seventh commandment forbids unjustly taking or keeping the goods of one's neighbor and wronging him in any way with respect to his goods. It commands justice and charity in the care of earthly goods and the fruits of men's labor. For the sake of the common good, it requires respect for the universal destination of goods and respect for the right to private property. Christian life strives to order this world's goods to God and to fraternal charity. One last quote from the United States Council of Catholic Bishops Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship letter. Uh, They said, quote, Welfare policy should reduce poverty and dependency, strengthen family life, and help families leave poverty through work, training, and assistance with child care, health care, housing, and transportation. Given the link between family stability and economic success, welfare policy should address both the economic and cultural factors that contribute to family breakdown. It should also provide a safety net for those who cannot work, end quote. So when it comes to the economy and to welfare, the principles of Catholic social teaching make clear to us that welfare for those unable to afford food, housing, health care, etc. must be provided. At the same time, it is also clear that a just society must create and or allow an economy where most people can work and can support themselves and their families, if, ap- if applicable, through their work. Striving for welfare, a necessary good when needed, without also recognizing the dignity of work, is out of line with the church. In the same way, striving for welfare in a way that disregards subsidiarity, which is, quote, opposed to all forms of collectivism and sets limits for state intervention, end quote, is also out of line with these guiding principles. I also think it's important that we recognize that welfare does not equal socialism or communism. We should be careful to not inaccurately conflate the two. So working for subsidiarity with welfare does not mean that we ought to be against all federally funded welfare but that we need to recognize the good and limitation upon state intervention. And exactly what this looks like is up for interpretation. But we need to recognize that good um, and the good in individuals selflessly helping others directly, person to person, via private welfare programs or via church-related programs, etc. So since I brought it up, (laughs) what does the church say about capitalism, socialism, and communism? 
Paragraph 2425 says, The Church has rejected the totalitarian and atheistic ideologies associated in modern times with communism or socialism. She has likewise refused to accept in the practice of capitalism, individualism, and the absolute primacy of the law of the marketplace over human labor. Regulating the economy solely by centralized planning, i.e. socialism or communism, perverts the basis of social bonds, regulating it solely by the law of the marketplace, i.e. unbridled capitalism or free market capitalism, fails social justice, for there are many human needs which cannot be satisfied by the market. Reasonable regulation of the marketplace and economic initiatives in keeping with a just hierarchy of values and a view to the common good is to be commended. In addition, paragraph 2429 says, Everyone has the right of an economic initiative. Everyone should make legitimate use of his talents to contribute to the abundance that will benefit all and to harvest the just fruits of his labor. He should seek to observe regulations issued by legitimate authority for the sake of the common good. Paragraph 2431 talks about the responsibility of the state. It says, quote, economic activity, especially the activity of a market economy, cannot be conducted in an institutional, judicial, or political vacuum. On the contrary, it presupposes sure guarantees of individual freedom and private property, as well as a stable currency and efficient public services. Hence, the principal task of the state is to guarantee this security so that those who work and produce can enjoy the fruits of their labors and thus feel encouraged to work efficiently and honestly. Another task of the state is that of overseeing and directing the exercise of human rights in the economic sector. However, primary responsibility in this area belongs not to the state, but to individuals and to the various groups and associations which make up society. 2432. Those responsible for business enterprises are responsible to society for the economic and ecological effects of their operations. They have an obligation to consider the good of persons and not only increase of profits. Profits are necessary, however, they make possible the investments that ensure the future of a business and they guarantee employment. So unbridled market-based capitalism is out of line with these principles as work shouldn't be, quote, regulated solely by the law of the marketplace and also because, quote, those responsible for business enterprises have an obligation to consider the good of persons and not only the increase of profits, end quote. At the same time, socialism and communism are not ethical solutions because they are incompatible with our inalienable right to freedom, our right of economic initiative, the right to property, and the call of fraternal charity. At the same time, socialism and communism are not ethical solutions because they are incompatible with our inalienable right to freedom, our right of economic initiative, the right to property, and the call of fraternal charity. We covered each of these needs, but to quickly recap them, paragraph 1738 states that every human person created in the image of God has the natural right to be recognized as a free and responsible being. The right to the exercise of freedom is an inalienable requirement of the dignity of the human person. Our right of economic initiative and the good of harvesting the fruits of our just labor are detailed in paragraph 2429. 
And then the right to property is listed many times, but the paragraph that Tony read above specifically talks about the responsibility of the state. It says, quote, economic activity presupposes sure guarantees of individual freedom and private property, as well as a stable currency and efficient public services. Hence, the principal task of the state is to guarantee the security so that those who work and produce can enjoy the fruits of their labors and thus feel encouraged to work efficiently and honestly. And then regarding the call to fraternal charity, paragraph 2444 says that love for the poor is even one of the motives for the duty of working so as to be able to give to those in need, end quote. Of course, those who cannot work, as stated multiple times, still absolutely deserve what is needed to lead a truly human life, which the catechism clearly states is food, clothing, health, work, education and culture, suitable information, the right to establish a family, and so on. Um, All of this was read earlier, but it's from paragraph 1908. So we have an absolute obligation to work for the creation of a society where all people, whether they are poor, have a disability, are ill, etc., are able to receive each of these things necessary for a, quote, truly human life. It seems to me that we should vote in a way that will best allow a truly human life for each person, per the definition above, and that will also allow for jobs for as many people as possible, and that will stand against socialism and communism as they both contradict at least four principles lifted, listed above. Not to go off on a tangent too much, but do you think socialism or communism actually are present or could be present anytime soon? Um, I don't want to be an alarmist in this sense. Um, I think that sometimes people are. So this is something I try to look at critically. I know that Bernie Sanders used to be an outlier among the Democrats, but that he or his his supporters wrote this year's Democratic platform along with Biden and Biden supporters. In addition, AOC is a duly elected member of the Democratic Party. She is a self-proclaimed Democratic Socialist and, um, by and large, very accepted by the Democratic Party and often a spokesperson for them. Her Green New Deal was signed by Kamala Harris, our obviously one of our candidates for vice president. And the first version of the Green New Deal specifically said that the government has a duty to provide for those, quote, unwilling to work, end quote. We'll link one of the articles about this from CNBC. I know that Biden has his own plan rather than the Green New Deal, and that the final version of the Green New Deal did not explicitly state for those, quote, unwilling to work the way that the first version did. But I've never heard Biden say that the Green New Deal is unethical and that he'd fight against it. And to be clear, parts of it are ethical. But um, I think that there are some some very drastic changes to how the economy and how welfare would work within it. And then given the fact that uh, Kamala Harris co-signed it, I don't think that we'll hear from her that she's that she's against it. Um, as for democratic socialism, I, I have seen and heard quite a few people support it. Um, my understanding of it is that it is, it is simply a gradual move into socialism and it is a move that is done through our votes. This doesn't necessarily make me think it's okay. I think that socialism throughout history is generally ushered in by the people. That's how it begins. So well, it's, it's initiated in through multiple levels, but, mm-hmm. you know, I've heard that people state that, you know, we don't have, in America, we, we tend to believe that we have a truly capitalistic society and, or economy, I should mm-hmm. say. And really what I think this actually means is that overall our economy 
leans more towards the capitalistic side mm-hmm. versus the socialistic side. Yeah. However, there are elements of socialism and capitalism uh, very real and present yeah. in uh, our governments already from mm-hmm. the federal level uh, down to the local levels. And it doesn't, like you were saying you don't need to be an alarmist and you don't need to be a shock you know, jock or shock person right. to, to state this because you could look at like the public education system or some elements of their health care system, mm-hmm. uh, even some elements of Social Security or some of the housing programs that are out there mm-hmm. uh, definitely lean uh, more towards like the socialistic side. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, but these teachings or the teachings of the Catholic Church tend to actually agree that we need some type of a balance between the two mm-hmm. where people's basic needs uh, and, and dreams are able to be achieved yeah. um, and, and also that they have a, a certain amount of freedoms, inalienable rights, you know, which we outline in the Constitution yeah. and are also outlined in the Declaration of Independence. So that balance exists and it, it exists in every country of the world, really. Um, you know, whether a country leans more towards socialism, which I would consider like Cuba to be like a truly socialistic model. Mm-hmm. And what distinguishes that from, say, uh, like uh, uh, some of the Nordic countries? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the difference is, can you own property as a private individual citizen? And can you own your own business? Mm-hmm. And in Cuba, you cannot own your own business and that's a major distinguishing factor so socialism and capitalism i think are are used in the same way that the left and the right use a lot of the issues it's it's kind of a ping pong back and forth but in my opinion the truth is is that we have elements of socialism and capitalism in our american economy we lean towards or we traditionally have leaned more towards capitalism but that doesn't mean that socialism or socialist policies don't exist, uh, they very much do. And I think that having a healthy debate as to what sort of a balance that we want is, is, is vital and important. It's not something we should shy away from. Yeah, I totally agree. So we didn't really intend to talk specifically about this, but if you go to the Cato Institute, they have something called the Human Freedom Index, I believe. I've looked at it quite a bit. I just I didn't have it here because we weren't planning on talking about it, but it's fascinating. If you look at it and compare the U.S. to other countries, we're certainly more capitalist than some countries, but we are actually uh, less capitalist than um, some of the, certainly some countries that people talk about as being socialist. So it's pretty interesting to see that, at least according to the Cato Institute, the U.S. is already less capitalist than other countries that are oftentimes hailed as as making socialism work well. So I think it's very important. And I do think it's a very important discussion, as you said. And I do think that um, it's striking that we have people who are proud to call themselves socialists. And in my opinion, it does not matter if they are calling themselves democratic socialists because they are. They were elected into their position. Um, I think that we should not be supporting, especially people who are proud to say that they're that they're socialists. That's my opinion. And I I do think that that is upheld by church teaching. Should we go through one more example of how we need to consider each of these principles when making particular decisions? Yeah, why don't we look at education? I think this is such an obvious place where systemic inequalities not only still exist, but are perpetuated by some policies. 
So to repeat, the church's statement on the common good includes education and culture and suitable information as necessary aspects to lead a truly human life. Also, as we've said a couple times, sinful inequalities must be destroyed. These principles lead me to think that quality of education of each individual is paramount. And this is particularly obvious when you look at our home state here in Minnesota. Uh, we have, uh, out of the entire country, uh, some of the worst achievement gaps between students of color and their white counterparts than anywhere else in, in the in the whole country. We're like in the top three, I'm pretty sure. We'd have to look to cite exactly. Mm-hmm. But this is just by measure of math scores, test scores, graduation rates, mm-hmm. and that achievement gap even uh, extends past education uh, and you can take measures such as home ownership, business ownership, uh, uh, employment or unemployment rates, uh, wage income, and you'll see major disparities in Minnesota between people of color and their white counterparts. So education and equality are intrinsically linked along with the broader socioeconomic forces at play. Yeah, and so I think we've already read ample sources to show that that level of inequality is not in line with these principles, um, that that level of inequality should not be present in a just society. Do Something we haven't talked about yet, do any of the principles of Catholic social teaching discuss unions? Because I feel like that comes into play a lot when discussing education as well. Yes. Paragraph 2430 says, economic life brings into play different interests often opposed to one another. This explains why conflicts that characterize it arise. Efforts should be made to reduce these conflicts by negotiation that respects the right and duties of each social partner. Those responsible for business enterprises, representatives of wage earners, for example, trade unions, and public authorities when we appropriate. Okay, so in discussing education, we know from the principle of the rights of the worker and from this paragraph that you just read, Tony, that representatives of wage earners, i.e. unions, are sometimes needed to, quote, reduce conflicts. At the same time, as we already said, we need to uphold the principle of the dignity of life, which includes the ability to live a fully human life, which we know includes education and reducing sinful disparities. And we also understand the importance of a society working to undo these things and working to allow each individual to live a fully human life. Okay, so when discussing education, we know from the principle of the rights of the worker and from this paragraph that representative uh, representatives of wage earners, that is unions, are sometimes needed to reduce conflicts. At the same time, we need to uphold the principle of the dignity of life and the fact that this includes the ability to live a fully human life, as well as the importance of a society working to undo disparities. So these principles make me think that whatever legislation we support with regards to education ought to work to significantly decrease the achievement gap. I would argue that anti-union education policies would probably be out of line with church teaching as the paragraph I read specifically states that the needs for unions sometimes exist and this makes sense with the principle of the rights of workers. But what you said makes it clear that any policies that place the good or the interests of a union or the workers, uh, teachers above the good of the people who ought to be served by the workers, in this case, the students or the parents or our society at large, Mm -hmm. would also be out of line with these principles. 
I agree. So I think in summary, we should vote in a way that will decrease the achievement gap while also allowing for unions and for the rights of the workers to be respected. Yeah. So a lot of what we're talking about here is achieving that balance, the balance which is outlined here in these teachings. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind because because so much of what we do as voters is feel like we have to jump completely on one side or the other. Mm -hmm. But if we actually apply these principles, it doesn't necessarily favor one party view or, or the other. It actually favors doing what's best for the individual and for the society and economy as a whole. Yeah. So we haven't obviously gone through every issue that we need to consider when voting, but hopefully us talking through a few of these will help all of us to apply the principles of Catholic social teaching in all of our decisions and at this time when we vote. Um, Should we conclude by returning to the Atlantic article? Let's do it. All right. I think that many people see President Trump as being racist or xenophobic or misogynistic or potentially a white supremacist. They look at him as somebody who doesn't care about women, uh, somebody who really doesn't care about anyone but himself. What we do on this show is we don't judge people's souls. These claims may or may not be true. We don't have evidence either way to to prove it. But the policies that have been put in place under the Trump administration do not seem to line up with these statements about Trump's personal character. So if I learn about all aspects of the common good and of Catholic social teaching, and if I look into policies supported by President Trump and policies supported by the former Vice President Biden, and if I conclude that the Trump administration has made decisions that are more in line with the principles of Catholic teaching than Biden has done, then I think that I have a moral obligation to vote for Trump rather than Biden. I think that Christians in particular, as we've talked about, clearly have a duty to think of others when we vote. Uh, We need to determine which administration has and most likely will respect the right to life of each person, respect each person's right to exercise freedom, as well as each person's responsibility to live in communion with and to serve others, which is most likely to care for the poor and vulnerable with welfare when necessary, with quality and ethical medicine, and also by doing what is necessary for most people to be able to work and to provide from their work, which is most likely to uphold this dignity of work as well as the rights of the worker, which is most likely to defend subsidiarity and to keep this in mind prior to implementing, for example, federal programs or programs that affect other countries, and which is most likely to care for the environment in ways that uphold solidarity, the dignity of work, and subsidiarity. If these principles could be implemented perfectly, each person would have their inalienable rights to life and liberty. Each person would have all they need to live a life that is fully human including education, food, housing, reaching their dreams, having a job that provides for them and their family. These principles clearly support those who have been historically marginalized in our country. And so I think we have a moral obligation to vote for the person who we think will enact legislation that is most in line with these principles. Not voting for the best policies possible would, to me, be akin to voting against the dignity of so many who are marginalized. This obviously includes the unborn, but also people of color, those who are poor, those who live in neighborhoods with high crime rates, those who have historically been incarcerated at higher rates than others, 
uh, those who have historically lived with lower graduation rates, higher maternal mortality rates, and those who have immigrated to our country because they recognize how unethical socialism is. When it comes to voting, do we want young people, as are discussed in the Atlantic article, do we want young people to focus most on how others will be affected by policies and legislation? Or do we want to teach young people that words matter more and that our personal judgments of someone else's character matters more? Peter Weiner places great emphasis on how we will be perceived when we vote. But to truly stand up for others, I think that legislation should be our biggest concern when we vote. I think that that's true. We should look at the policies. We should judge the outcomes of those policies in terms of how they fall in line with these teachings. It doesn't mean, though, that we can't expect our leaders to also have rhetoric and use words that are empathetic to all the people of the country and the world. So one is not mutually exclusive of the other. And we should also point out that there's enormous amounts, especially during a campaign season, there are enormous amounts of money that are spent uh, to market certain messages. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we don't even know that we're being marketed to. But it seems if you look at just the surface of the 2020 election, that the choice is decency versus barbarianism. Mm -hmm. And I'm not quite sure that that's actually the choice that's before the American people. So, yes, we're called to also dig down past the messaging, past the marketing money, and really look and examine those policies, mm -hmm. which is something that can be initiated through conversations, through research, and just talking to each other. We'll wrap up this episode, but I want to briefly mention a different article published in The Atlantic last week by Shadi Hamid. Hamid clearly states that he wants Biden to win the presidency this year, so he is not writing as a Trump supporter. He is discussing what Americans are appalled by and what Americans largely ignore in the context of Senator Tom Cotton and the obviously heinous ethnic cleansing currently happening in communist China. Hamid states that, quote, a world where a Republican senator in a democracy even a flawed democracy, and he's talking about Senator Tom Cotton, in a world where a Republican senator is deemed fascist and therefore beyond the bounds of respectable discussion, while actual authoritarians, or worse, are free to propagate their views with little public censure, is a world that is upside down. Words should mean something, and if Americans insist on instrumentalizing them for political objectives, however just, then journalists and analysts will no longer have the language to describe the worst threats from the worst actors. What the Chinese Communist Party is doing is not unspeakable. It can and should be spoken about, however difficult that may be. Moral clarity requires us to seek both accuracy and proportion. Anything less does a disservice to those who have actually struggled, fought, and died against fascism. If Americans, even for just a moment, could look beyond Trump, they might realize that another world, one where fascism is a living, breathing thing, awaits them, end quote. So I guess my hope is that we can all work for accuracy and proportion, which are Hamid's words, when we decide which issues matter most when voting and which potential executives and legislators will best bring about proportionally good legislation. I think we need to be willing to do this if we genuinely care about those historically marginalized in our country. 
We may come to different conclusions, but if some of us are voting only on the identity of the presidential candidates and the rest of us are voting on the legislation supported by the different candidates, then I'm not sure we're even working for the same ends. I guess my hope is that we can all work for accuracy and proportion, Hamid's words, when we decide which issues matter most when voting and which potential executives and legislators will best bring about proportionally good legislation. I think we need to be willing to do this if we genuinely care about those historically marginalized in our country. We may come to different conclusions on what is best, but if some of us are voting only on the identity of the presidential candidates and the rest of us are voting on the legislation supported by the different candidates, then I'm not sure we're even working for the same ends. There's a lot to think about here. Just Mm -hmm. think about how loosely the term Nazi is thrown around against our elected political leaders on both sides. Mm -hmm. What type of an exaggeration is that compared to the Jewish people and family members and ancestors of those who lost so much to the real Nazis? Mm -hmm. Or labeling President Trump every ism possible actually provides cover for some of the instances that we should all question as a society and as an American people. Mm -hmm. So that's a really important part when trying to throw these labels against your political opposition, whether it be your friends, brothers, sisters, or people who are in elected office. So thank you all, though, for listening to episode five of Hello, Minnesota with Tony and Leona. We hope to be able to record again soon. Probably the next time we'll be in El Centro, California. Mm -hmm. It's crazy trying to think about leaving tomorrow. Uh, We certainly would appreciate your prayers for our safety when we're traveling on the road. And also, please keep Leona and her patients in the ICU in your prayers as well. Yeah, we will keep each of you in our thoughts and prayers as we travel and uh, stay in touch. Goodbye, Minnesota. Goodbye.